0: Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles or Bible apps, we're going to be in Revelation 21 today, verses 9 through 27, picking up from where we left off last week. The Apostle John writes, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, It showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the twelve tribes of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, white, while the city was pure gold clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the gate was pure gold, transparent as glass. nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life." Thanks, Jordan.
1: Good job on the stones, but I disagree with you on a few of those pronunciations, but that's all right. Um, Guys, we are in Revelation for Advent. uh, As we remember the first advent of Jesus' coming, where the Son of God Himself took on flesh and walked in our place, He was perfect and he suffered in our place. He uh, died on a cross, shed his own blood so we could be reconciled to God. And uh, he did so by defeating death and sin itself, by rising from the dead three days later. And he's ascended, and he's reigning, he's praying for us this morning, and one day he will return. And so it's incredible that we get to celebrate this season of Advent. Thank you, Stumps, for sharing this morning about the peace that comes from Christ. As we look back on the first Advent and realize we can have this peace, today through Christ. But we also look ahead to the second advent when Jesus will return and He's going to make all things new. And so, that's what we're doing in setting our hopes and our gaze this morning and in the weeks ahead. And the interesting thing that we see today is that when the Scriptures speak about Jesus' second advent, God wants us to think about home. He wants us to be thinking about home. And home is an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, I've, I've moved quite a bit in the last 15 months, it's, it's not a lie. Um, uh, But, yeah, 15 months ago or so, we moved here from Corvallis, and that was a difficult move for our family. We had lived in Corvallis for 10 years. Corvallis was home to us. We had lots of investment, lots of relationships, lots of friends. That's a hard move, you know, to leave a place that you feel like is home and to come and make a new home. And uh, that wasn't enough. We moved again, right? We moved uh, just a matter of 10 months later to another house. We're still in Gresham. Uh, so, thank you to everybody who's helped me move, like, a hundred times in the last year. But uh, we've moved again. And even as a church, we, we called Dexter home for 13 years, and then we were homeless, and now we are temporarily in this place, you know? Uh, but we've even moved offices, as Jordan said. Like, we're continually moving, and this idea of home can feel really elusive to us. And I, and I think one question that people often ask when you're moving is they'll come up to you and they'll say, how's it going? Are you settled in yet? You know, does it feel like home yet? Does it feel like home yet? Uh, some of you maybe have moved to Gresham recently. I've met some of you who have, and, and you're still waiting for Gresham to feel like home. Home is something that many of us feel like we've lost, and so it's something that we look back on because we've lost it, and we're wishing if we could ever get that back. But some of us are always looking forward to home. We don't feel like we've ever found it, so we're constantly searching, constantly traveling, constantly trying to find the next thing, and so we think, oh, this is it, this will make me feel, this will feel like home, and then that's not it, so we move on, we go to someplace else, will this feel like home? And we keep the shuffling going. And so, really, what's going on in our lives as we're searching, as we're homesick, we're looking for home. That's what we're doing. I mean, even people like Chip and Joe and those McGee people, you know, who sell their things, you know, to make your home look beautiful, or they have their TV shows, you know, on HGTV or whatever to kind of show you this is what your house could look like. I mean, we're searching even for the dream home. We want to make our homes an ideal home, but it's homesickness. And that's what our passage is about this morning. It's showing you the home that you're actually longing for, the home that you're longing for. And when our passage speaks of our future home, it doesn't speak of shiplap and decorations and fresh paint, okay? It speaks of God and what He's going to do for His people. And we see two things in our passage this morning. We see, number one, that God is going to make us beautiful. And secondly, we see that God is going to make us home. That our future home is a reality where God is going to make us beautiful and that God is going to make us home. So let's look at this first section, 9 through 21, is the verses we're looking at where God makes us beautiful. Uh, This is a challenging section that Jordan read. Uh, He nailed it in some ways, but it's not an exciting section to read, is it? You kind of check out, don't you? Why? Because it's description. It's just this long description of something. And so like when you're reading a book, like I've tried to read Fellowship of the Ring by Tolkien many times, but I get lost in all the description, just what's happening, you know? And that's what happens when we read these description sections, but it's really valuable and so critical that we see what is being described here for us. Look in verse 19. What does it say? John is summoned here by an angel that you can read about early in Revelation. And John is summoned up to this high place where he's able to look down and see this amazing scene that I can't even fathom what he's able to see, and what does he see? He sees a wedding. He sees a wedding. And then look at verses 10 through 11. Just like the beginning of the story in Scripture, we see the same thing happening here at the end. It's a wedding again, isn't it? Just like in the beginning, Adam is given a bride, Eve, from God. And here we see another wedding, but this bride isn't a person, it's a collective people. And it's people who are being given to the Lamb, who is Jesus. He's the groom, the Lamb is the groom. And so whenever we see a reference to a Lamb in Scripture, our minds should be tipped off that this is probably pointing us to Jesus. And this theme of this Lamb is, is really important in these last two chapters of the Bible because uh, it's, it's brought up seven different times, And so, this lamb is referring to Jesus as the one who suffered and died for the sins of His people. And here, this bride is being wedded to the lamb. So John is piling up all these references and images here in verses 10 and 11 from the Old Testament to describe this bride for Jesus, and this image of this bride is not an individual person at all. It's actually a collective people, and it's not just a collective people, it's actually a city. So, you could call this the bride city. That's what this is. And and what's the bride doing? Well, it's being depicted as coming down from heaven. That's what John sees. It's, It's coming down from heaven. And this statement is really important because this statement is telling you the origin of this bride's life. This is the origin of the bride's life. Just as God formed Eve and brought her to Adam, God has formed the bride of the Lamb, and He has given her life and now He's presenting her to His Son, the second Adam, Jesus. Verse 11, we see that the attention of these verses on verse 11 and beyond is on the beauty of this bride. We see this in verses 13 and 14 especially. We see the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, who are written on this bride city's foundations and walls. Why? We are supposed to know who this bride is. Who is this bride? Well, the bride is God's redeemed people, people from the Old Testament, the New Testament. It's those who looked ahead in anticipation and put their faith in the coming Messiah, and it's those who have now recognized the Messiah has come, and they've looked back, and they've put in their faith in Jesus, the Messiah. It's those people. It's God's redeemed people. Guys, so we are headed towards a wedding day, and, and the description of this bride is glorious and brilliant, and then all of a sudden, this angel pulls out a ruler in verse 15. Okay, so what's the deal here? Who in here, I don't want to embarrass you, so don't raise your hand, but who in here would bring a ruler to a wedding? I mean, who would bring a ruler to a wedding? And not only that, walk up to the bride at the wedding and start measuring the bride, okay? Who's going to do that? Now, just in case you've never been to a wedding before and you were thinking, I want to be really biblical and do that or something, you know, and you're going to a wedding sometime soon, I would just, word of advice, don't do that. That's really messed up. Okay? You don't want to do that. Uh, but that's what's going on here. We have this angel who is measuring, and John um, is telling us about this. And then if you look at verses 15 through 17, we see what's going on. It turns out in these verses that this city is a perfect cube, and it's enormous. It's enormous. I was a political science and theology major, not a math major, so I'm sure someone could correct me on my math here, but it says this is uh, 12,000 stadia. That's how big it is from from length and height and width. It's 1,400 miles each way. It's a cube. So the footprint of the city is about 2 million square miles. It's roughly the size of the Greek world. In terms of volume, it's 342,792,000 miles. This is a huge city, okay? In today's terms, the footprint of this city would stretch from the Pacific Ocean to St. Louis, all the way up through Canada and down through Mexico. It's enormous, okay? This is a city on a cosmic scale. And besides its shape, that's more interesting, it's not just the enormity that we are called attention to, it's the shape. It's a cube. Because what's the only thing in the Bible that's measured out as a, as a cube? What's the only other thing that's measured out in the Bible as a cube? What's the Holy of Holies, isn't it? It's that place in the temple where God dwelled with His people, right, the place in the temple where God and His presence was made known on earth. This is the place, the only place in the Old Testament where heaven and earth met. It was an intense place, too. Because only once a year on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur, only the great high priest, only one person on one day a year could enter into that place, and they would have entered into it trembling. They would have walked by bloody altars where sacrifices had been made to atone for the sins of people and even for himself. He would have walked by these bloody altars on his way into the Holy of Holies, and he would have done so trembling. And many times, other priests would even tie a rope around the guy's waist just in case he did something inappropriate or wrong or was overcome with fear and just died because they didn't want to have to go in after him. So, they would just have to drag him out by the rope that was around his waist. So here, John is describing this massive, perfect cube. And the only other thing that's a cube in Scripture is a place as well. It's the Holy of Holies, the place of God's glorious dwelling. Then John returns in verse 18 after giving us this detail to describe its beauty again. That, that's what the reference to all these precious stones are, okay? This isn't just for geologists to nerd out or something. You know, I don't, I don't have like an application for each stone or something like that, right? The, the walls here are jasper, and, and they're made of jasper. They don't just have jasper on them. You see that in verse 18. Jasper was used early in Revelation as a symbol for God Himself. If you look in chapter 4, verse 3. So, overall, John is speaking, though, about this heavenly city and how it's built of these costly materials. That's the point, is that these are really expensive, costly materials. This is glorious. This is beautiful. That's what we're supposed to see here. So, consider just the structure of the passage, of all this description. We have beauty, verses 9 through 14, holy of holies, 15 through 17. Beauty, 18 through 21. So we have beauty, holy of holies, beauty. Well, what's the point? It's pretty clear. The people of God, this bride city, is beautiful, and what makes her beautiful is her holiness. What makes her beautiful is her holiness. Just so we're on the same page, holiness is being set apart for God. That's what holiness is. You can't be holy apart from God because holiness is defined by God because God Himself is holy. So, holiness is being set apart by Him for Him. That's what it is. So, I just want to ask you this morning what do you think is beautiful in life? What do you think is beautiful? I mean, our passage is putting these words together, holiness and beauty, holiness and beauty. And I don't think those are two words that we often put together, is it? I mean, do you think holiness is beautiful? Do you think it's beautiful? Do you think of holiness as beautiful? Do you find holiness attractive? Well, it is when it's the holiness of God. We're not talking about that self-righteous, holier-than-thou idea of holiness, where some people wrongfully think, I'm pursuing holiness so that God will love me more and so that I could feel better than other people. I'm not talking about that. We're not just talking about following the rules. We're not talking about that. Real holiness that comes from God as the source, I mean, moral perfection right? Pure love, perfect righteousness and justice, true kindness, beauty, right? C.S. Lewis once described that if we could see ourselves made holy, we would see an image so dazzlingly white, sorry, dazzlingly beautiful, that we would be tempted to bow down and worship it. This is the holiness of God. This is the holiness that we will have, and it will be beautiful. So so why isn't holiness beautiful now? Why isn't it beautiful now? Why isn't it more attractive to us now? Well, I think in some ways it's because we often reduce beauty to outward appearances. That's what we think is beautiful. It's what's on the outside. And we have this pretty striking difference. If you look back just a few chapters of Revelation chapter 17, you'll actually see another woman who is a city. It's the city of Babylon being described in, in chapter 17. It's the city of Babylon. And in the Bible, Babylon is often representative of just people who are opposed to God. So, we see Babylon it's often just representing people who are opposed to God. And in chapter 17, verse 4, it says this, the woman, Babylon, was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, sounds kind of like this city, but holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And I saw this woman drunk with the blood of the saints, which means the holy ones, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I marveled greatly." So. Revelation 17, the people of the world are described as beautiful just on the outside. Chapter 21, God's people are described as beautiful in every which way. But what makes them beautiful is their holiness. I've wrestled with this question myself this week. If I don't find holiness attractive, what does that say about me? If you don't find holiness attractive true holiness. What does that say about you? And I don't mean holiness is self-righteous. I'm better than you, just kind of being a jerk about it. But but we're talking about something so countercultural, so otherworldly, the kind of love and peace and kindness and gentleness and everything that we see in Christ, that kind of holiness. You see, when I find sin more attractive than holiness… That's not telling me that there's a defect in the holiness of God. That's saying there's a defect in me. That's what that's revealing. And so, J.C. Ryle uh, convictingly talks about this idea in his classic book, Holiness, which I realize I quoted it last week, so maybe I'm just recommending you read it, I don't know. But, um, but great classic book. But he says this, he says, if you could enter heaven without holiness, what would you do? what joy would you even feel there? What holy man or woman of God would you sit down with for fellowship? Because their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their character is not your character. What they love, you do not love. If you dislike a holy God now, why would you want to be with Him forever? If worship does not capture your attention at present, what makes you think it will thrill you in some heavenly future? If ungodliness is your delight here on earth, what will please you in heaven where all there is is what is clean and pure? You would not be happy there if you are not holy here. Man, what makes this bride beautiful? It's her holiness. What makes what's beautiful to you? What do you think is beautiful? Let me ask you are you homesick? Are you homesick? Well, just like any married couple, after your wedding, you start making a home, right? You start making a home. And that's what we see the second thing, the last thing, actually, in this section is that God makes us home. Look at verse 22 to the end. What does it say? I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So John says there's no temple in the city, right? There's no temple in the city, the city itself is the Holy of Holies. There is no place that you need to go to to meet with God, okay? There's no separation. He dwells with us. We dwell with Him. He is, by definition, our temple here. And all the details here make that clear, because notice, there's no more sun to light and nurture the garden of God. There's no more candles that would light the temple historically. None of these were all no longer needed, right? God is the light. There's no longer a priesthood, right? We're all getting these deficiencies here. There is the absence of many things. There's no priests. If you've ever seen a, an image of the temple, which I've shown you one before, um, but the image of the temple, there was this outer court where, where the Gentiles would come. Right? There's no outer court, is there, right, where, where the Gentiles could come and worship? Why? Because nations are coming in. They're just coming in they're a part of this city. So, this bride is a a multi-ethnic bride, right? This isn't a bunch of people who look like you and talk like you and eat like you, right? It's it's not just your people hanging out in paradise with you. No, it's, it's everybody from every nation coming in. And these nations aren't bringing in their tithes and sacrifices, just saying, I'll give a little bit of this to you, God, and a little bit of this to you. No, what are they doing? They're bringing all, all they have, all that they are, their honor, their glory. They are bringing it to worship. That's what they're doing. Kings are doing this. What's it like in the city? Well, it's utter peace, because look at how there's all these gates. Earlier on, right, we saw there was all these gates, so many gates around this city. They're never even shut. They're just open all the time. And what's the point of a gate? You have a gate probably at your house or something. What's the point of a gate? It's to keep people out, and to keep some people in, right? You know, that's kind of what you use gates for. But these gates are just open all the time, aren't they? Right? They don't, they're never shut. Why? Because chapter 20 shows that, what, Satan and God's enemies are defeated. No fear. You don't need to lock your doors at night. Never again will you wake up and go, did you hear that? What was that? You go check it out. Right? You never do that anymore. Right? There's no more enemies, and so now God's redeemed bride doesn't just have entry they have full access to God. And this is being shown to you. If you're a follower of Christ, this is being shown to you as your future home. This is home. So, I'll keep asking you, do you feel homesick? Homesick for the day when God makes us home, when you get to be with God unhindered. We have these, if I can call them pieces that we hold onto today that point us towards this reality, don't we? Right? We, we have the Holy Spirit Himself who has been sent into our lives, so the same Spirit that lives in the temple now lives in God's people. Right? We, we have God's Word which reveals God to us, so every time we open these pages, we get to hear from God. We have prayer. We can speak to God. You have the ear of God. Let Him have yours. Right? We, we We have each other. We have each other to support one another as we walk through this life together. So, we have all these pieces, if you will, that point us towards this future great reality when everything will be realized, but that's what they are. They're pointing you towards the substance. It's like when you, um, if you you've ever traveled and you go out of town and you're away from somebody that you really love, you know, somebody that you would say is home to you. So, maybe this is a best friend. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your wife. You Should say it's your wife if it is, okay? But you know, but when you're away, what do you what do you do? You miss them, don't you? So what, what do you have with you? Well, you often have a photograph, right? Maybe you have a letter. You know, uh, maybe you, you'll call them, you'll text them, you'll FaceTime them. These kinds of things. Um, embarrassingly, in college, when I was away from Elizabeth for a summer, I I don't know if I stole it or borrowed it or whatever, but I had a little bottle of her scent, you know. So, I'm a freak show, but it's all right. So, uh, but I had the scent of her like, you know, vanilla, whatever she wore all the time, because when I missed her, I could get a whiff, you know, and, and uh, it was not a great substitute for her herself, right? But here's the thing, when I saw her again, just like when you saw that person you missed again, you didn't really need the photo like you did before, right? You didn't need the letters anymore, You didn't need to FaceTime from the other room. I didn't need the the scent bottle anymore, right? When you reunite, you get the substance. That's what those are pointing you towards. And that's the exact same thing here, right? You won't even need the sun. This is our future home. But what's more amazing to me is not that this is our future home, but this is God's future home. This is God's future home home. I mean, it's it's hard to make sense of this on our end. It surely is. But on God's end, God's not vacationing here. He lives here forever. See, see, there's nothing that should warrant God finding His home with us. We're told the highest heavens can't contain Him, yet He'll dwell with us. That's what the psalmist says. The psalmist also says, what is man that you're mindful of him? But He's been mindful of this from the very beginning. Again, He was the one who planted the garden in the first place and put humanity there. But as humans, we decided that having God dwell with us was not enough, right? We wanted more. We wanted other. We wanted to do our own thing. We said, God, I don't need You. I need this, and we've sinned, we broke that fellowship with God. But, But God is merciful, you guys. At first, He was the one who gave the plans for the temple. The plans that the book of Hebrews tells you were modeled after heaven itself. So, maybe you're reflecting right now, if you're anything like me this week, and you're reflecting, you're like, man, I'm not holy. If this is my future, am I I drawn to this? I'm not holy. How could this be my future, that not only God would be my home, but I would be God's home? You feel the weight of Psalm 23 that says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, which is the city of Jerusalem, that great city? Who shall stand in His holy place? Only He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up His soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Dang, I'm, I'm kind of behind. But He was also not the one who just gave the plans for the temple. He was the one who beyond all reason in our minds, decided to take on human flesh and incarnate Himself, to condescend, to come down, to draw near, to live with us, and not only live amongst us, but Jesus, the only one who could ever ascend God's holy hill without spot or blemish, climbed up onto a cross instead, and the Lamb shed His blood there for those who would come to Him in faith and be forgiven. And He didn't stay dead, He defeated it. He defeated death and sin, and Revelation shows us even that ancient serpent. And so, Psalm 23 continues and says what? Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is the King of glory." He was the only one who could ascend the hill. And so when He ascended, what did He say to us? He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you will be with me. And so we know that He's coming back to do this. And so we do not miss verse 3 that we looked at last week. What does it say? Not at last, man's dwelling place is with God. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, at last, God's dwelling place is with man. It's the second advent that God is going to forever be, Emmanuel, God with us. And this place will be beautiful because it will be holy. I mean, we're told that in verse 25 vividly, there is no night there. This isn't just saying if you like Alaskan summers or something, you're going to like it. This is much bigger, right? It's talking about true light the light that John says in 1 John, to walk in the light as He is in the light. You have fellowship with Him. We know this because verse 27 says what? Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Guys, this should not be our future. My name should not be in that book. God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he will by no means clear the guilty. So what did he do? He sent the lamb. The lamb came for his bride, came very near. So how will your name be in the book? Receive the lamb. Maybe some of you don't feel beautiful this morning, anything but beautiful. Maybe in a real way you're kind of consumed with your outward appearance. You, you look a way that you wish you didn't, right? But you need to know this morning that when you receive the Lamb, Jesus clothes you with beauty that far outweighs and surpasses any outward beauty. I mean, you could have the beauty of the bride city of Babylon, but one day you'll see the ugliness. True beauty comes from Jesus. Some of you probably don't feel beautiful this morning because you walked in here feeling so much shame or guilt over how your week went over how your month went, over how your year went, and you're focused on your repeated failures and vices, and I'm here to tell you this morning that if you come to Jesus and trust in Him, He speaks a better word over you than that word of shame that you walked in here with this morning. He clothes you in His righteousness. He clothes you in His beauty. He washes you. He says, come and hide in me. So it's Jesus that actually makes us beautiful, and He does that so that He can make us home. Well, what relevance does this have for us today? If you're just thinking, and for some reason this is coming someday, but today I don't know how it matters, I'll say one thing to you. This is the thing that this, this, the first-century church was supposed to receive from this Word. We, we should be living like any bride would be approaching their wedding day. I say to you guys, we should be cultivating our beauty. We should be cultivating our beauty. I mean, I'm not even a bride, but even as a groom, I won't lie. I was a little mindful of how I looked, you know? Like, maybe I was aware of my weight or something like that, or uh, maybe I hit the tanning bed once. I don't know. Who knows? We're not going to say. But, um,. Maybe I should delete that comment, wish I could, but, but my wife, Elizabeth, I mean, I'm being really honest, she didn't need to do anything. Uh, she could have just woken up that day and been dazzling. But, but any bride cultivates their beauty for their wedding day, don't they? I didn't see Elizabeth all day. I didn't see her until the evening. Why? Because she was having her beauty cultivated. And how is that cultivated? Well, they're having their hair done, their makeup done, getting the dress just right, all these things. Who's getting them ready? Other people, right? Somebody else. They sit and have their beauty cultivated, right? In the same way, guys, it's it's Jesus that makes us beautiful, but you have to have the desire to have that beauty cultivated, right? The bride of Christ, are we cultivating that beauty? Are we sitting with with Him, having Him cultivate this kind of beauty? As you will not be happy there if you are not holy here. Are we cultivating our attraction to that beauty? Are we seeing sin for the ugliness that it is in the beauty of what the character of Christ has? Robert Murray McShane helps us here and how we cultivate our beauty. He says, "'Consider the greatness and the glory of Jesus.' Who has undertaken all in the place of sinners, and you will find it quite impossible to walk in darkness. Say it again. Consider the greatness and the glory of Christ. Look at him. Think about it for a while. Then think about what he went through in your place. You're going to have a really hard time walking in darkness. Why would you? Why would you? Guys, are you homesick this morning? Is this the home that you were longing for when you woke up this morning and you walked into here? Are you homesick? Do you long to be holy? We live for the things that we long for. We do. We long for this, our God, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, and one day that will be known in full. There will, no need, there will be no need for sun, because we will have the sun. And there will be no night there, because God will make made us beautiful, and He will have made us home. Father God, this morning, as we consider this future, this home, I do pray that you would make us homesick for you. That we wouldn't continue to try to find our home here, but we would really embrace that we are sojourners, God, in this place. We are headed towards that great day, and I pray that you would help us, Lord, as people, just to set our hope on that day. Live for that hope today and experience your peace in the midst of it all. God, I, I, we know that we can't change our own hearts, Lord. We just feel so powerless in doing that, and so we beg you, we ask you, Lord, to do a work in our lives that can only be attributed to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.